Welcome to the In Vino Fab podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. In Vino Fabulum means in wine story. There are so many tales that need to be told about women and community paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn and share about our stories, about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. Jamie Hoffman is the Director of Student Affairs and Learning for Noodle Partners, where she works with campuses across the nation to create ecosystems of support and engagement that are inclusive of online master's and doctoral students. Prior to this role, Jamie served as a full-time and adjunct faculty member teaching primarily online courses. For the first 15 years of her career, Jamie served as a student affairs professional and leader in the field, helping student affairs units leverage technology for learner success and mentoring students. Jamie spends most of her free time wrangling, I mean raising, her three and six-year-old, but also loves CrossFit, traveling, and crafts. Jamie, welcome to Vino Fab Pod. Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to be here or be at my house while you're at your house. Yeah, and that's the magic of the (laughs) podcast world. Absolutely. I was really excited to bring Jamie on. Um, We're kind of rounding out the Career Changer series because um, Jamie was a person that I met happenstance at a a conference and uh, back in the day we were working with student affairs at a conference and then got involved in some random projects and research and we kept talking. So, um, but she's one I've been following her career in the last few years. And I really was interested in having you come talk to our listeners just about um, kind of what that transition has been into from working in higher ed um, and going into the corporate life that's adjacent to higher ed with our listeners, because I think you've had a really unique experience. So if you want to share a little bit about your life on campus, maybe, and then what that transition was like, that'd be great. Yeah. So, well, much like you and some of your other uh, folks who have been on the podcast, I started as an RA at Cal Lutheran University, and I was concurrently doing my uh, bachelor's in music. And uh, I wanted to be a music teacher when I uh, got older. Really glad that path didn't work out because now that I have children, I realize that that would not have been my strength. Working What's your instrument? Hold on. What's your instrument? I my main instrument is the flute. Oh, okay. I haven't played it in quite some time, but uh, but I, I I loved being involved on campus. Um, and so when it came to sort of my next steps upon graduation, I didn't actually think that I. Uh, was competent enough to be a music teacher. So I thought I should go get a master's in music ed. So I went to Arizona State uh, initially to get to do that, to get the master's in music education. And I did one year of that. And at that same time, I was a hall director for the freshman residence hall that housed the student athletes. And uh, I loved it, you know, and I, I had this like one conversation with a friend of mine because I was in class with people who for fun, we're listening to Mozart and Beethoven, and I was listening to you kids on the block. Um, and, you know, I'm like oh, overwhelmed. Oh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I may or may not have been to like seven new kids on the block concerts lately, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, we're talking 20th century music theory, and I'm just not like jiving with this. And I'm seeing like, hey, you all who love this, you should be teaching children. And here I am, like, I'm talking about, like, how I can affect change with these college students in the residence halls and thrived on the challenge. Like, I, I knew the hall I got was known to be the most difficult one. And um, I liked that, which has been a common thread in my career. 
so a friend of mine was like, well, you know, you can do this as a profession, like it's a thing, right? So at that point in time, I did a bit of a pivot. Um, I got my master's in higher ed and I was pretty much convinced I was going to be a director of housing one day um, until I realized like living on campus does get pretty old pretty quick. So after being a hall coordinator at San Diego, San Diego State University for a year, I just wanted to move back home. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And then I floated around. Uh, you'll see on my resume, I was at a few places for a very short period of time, uh, which turned out to be pretty educational for me because uh, they were for profit, uh, one of them notably, and it's already shut down. But I, we didn't learn about for-profit institutions in my master's program because they were relatively new at that time. So um, I learned a lot uh, through that. And I, I knew really quickly within like a month that it wasn't going to be a fit. So I kept searching um, for that right fit. And I ended up then at Cal State Channel Islands eventually, um, which was a super cool, cool place to be because it was a startup university which I also have become knowledgeable that I thrive in startup environments where you have to create things. Um, and I'll, I, I'll kind of veer a little story now, but I realized that um, I listened to this other podcast where someone was talking about the stages of startups and that you should think about the right time to join a startup. And he gave a metaphor of a jungle a um, dirt road or a highway and you have to think are you the one that wants to go in and chop down the trees and actually create the path do you want it to be a little there and you kind of co-create or do you want the rules to be set out um, well I definitely am not a rule set out for me kind of person I love the the jungle piece um, so I, I kind of have picked up these different things along the way that have guided my decision making so initially it was like I can make an impact on people even if I don't teach music, I can make an impact in higher ed. Like that was a big thing for me because my music teachers were really the reason why I did so well in school, basically, because we moved here from England, um, didn't know anyone. and was made fun of because I had an accent, uh, which you still have some of your cute words that are Canadian. Which is- <laughs> when did you move here? How old were you when you moved? I was five. I was relatively young, but um, very quickly people were like, water, quota, you know, and as a five-year-old, you're like, I just want to fit in. So, Well, you don't have that accent now because I ask, uh, I think our accents are shaped about uh, when we're like eight or nine years old, they say, is the time that your accents get shaped. So uh, that's why I wondered if it was before or after that. That's interesting. Okay. It was after that, but I code switch. Yeah. I talked to my my parents like if they were in this room I would be speaking with an English accent sure. and when I, I gave like a random keynote speech in Scotland and I spoke with the English it's bizarre but I think um, lots of people do that when they travel but to talk about your music ed, that's a hard degree and you left it and picked up another master's is impressive because I was too was in education but I just finished because I didn't realize you could study student affairs and college yeah. and that sort of thing but it sounds like you've had so many fun experiences on physically living and working on campuses um but you're not doing that now so how did that no, so I I stayed in student affairs for 15 years um and concurrently I just kind of got to know faculty and so I had been teaching um on ground and then I was also uh teaching online for a variety of different institutions 
way back when um, I taught with University of Phoenix, which was also educational. Um, it was one of the only only places I could do that. Um, but basically, my first car- big biggest career pivot was when I had my eldest daughter. Um, I really couldn't fathom sitting, staying in this structured workday when you work till like six o'clock uh, at night and you see your kid for like an hour. And so at that time I had been um, participating in and then asked to lead the blended learning program at Channel Islands. Um, and so I took a position there and that was uh, that allowed me to have a more flexible schedule, which is something I would love to see in higher ed change. There's a very, very uh, close anchoring around the, um, you know, this nine to five workday, even though students aren't there, but uh, meaning students are there even through to the evening. But anyway, um, oh, I, ch- I would agree with you, like just to pause on that, like how yeah. we work in higher ed, we haven't changed almost anything. It's rare. You have a few institutions that do it, maybe a few bits or like colleges or small groups on campus that do it. But unless you're physically there, it's like we're punching a clock in a factory. And it's a weird thing because look, we know campuses are fluid. People are learning in multiple modes, online, blended, face-to-face environments. And they're there, you're right, at 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., not like the eight to nine, eight to five or nine to five workday. So I'm with you on flexible work environments. If we could get there at some point. I'd love to see that happen because it, it really is, uh, it, it really puts people at a disadvantage, especially as your life changes uh, when you have children, or if you just realize that your, your working strengths aren't at 7am or 8am when you have to be in the office. Um, but I think it's a very much a values uh, adjustment that needs to take place. And there's a lot of value placed around this face-to-face uh, needing to be there at a certain time kind of philosophy, which honestly needs to change in student affairs anyway, because of how many online students there are. But um, at any rate, with my career, um, I actually, while I was working at Teaching and Learning Innovations at CI. I was recruited uh, to go teach full-time at USC as a faculty member, and um, it was a full-time clinical position, and and because it's a research one, um, we were really the ones that, like, sort of um, ran the school in many ways, uh, because the research faculty uh, only taught in the PhD program for the most part, and, you know, they were busy doing research, so... Um, gosh, I had put this position on a pedestal at all. I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so amazing to be this full-time faculty member. And student affairs people are often marginalized, you know, compared to faculty at institutions. And so I sort of fell into this, uh, you know, trap of thinking like, wow, you know, this is going to be this great honor and privilege. And um, it was sort of, but it was also an awakening to realize that, um, first of all, the institution you work at, we've learned this every time you do a job search, like think about the institution and like, I'm a Cal State kind of gal. I'm not a USC gal. And um, there was a lot of uh, things that occurred that kind of validated that. But also like you have to think about when you're, when you're thinking about the job that you are going to do and how you're going to spend your days you do need to think about what will you be doing during the day and what brings you energy. So for me, 
I get my energy around doing, uh, being with people. I like doing um, projects that are goal oriented that I can work with my team to achieve. But um, teaching is quite a lonely sport, quite frankly. And I like reading. I do find it to be useful, but I don't feel energized by it. So I would, I was spending 70% of my time in coffee, pa- coffee shops, reading student papers all day long, all day long, or prepping for class. And like, hey, I love student development theory and leadership theory like the rest of them, but uh, uh, it just wasn't energizing. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do at that point in time. And that's when my other career pivot came. And I never thought I would work in a business because I came into higher ed for the good of people. And I had had a very bad experience working at a for-profit. But um, my now supervisor, Melora, she left USC to go and work at Noodle Partners. And I didn't know what I didn't know what Noodle Partners was. I mean, I had to Google like the name. I was like, really? Noodle? Like, what is, what is it all about? Pasta? I like pasta, but um, it was an interesting thing. And um, so it's an online program management company where we work alongside universities to help them launch online programs. When I was at USC, we uh, the Rossier School of Education uh, had a partnership as well with 2U. Um, and that, and so I kind of got introduced to what, um, an OPM was at that time and the funding model that we were under at USC wasn't something that fit with my values as far as making sure that, um, the institution is benefiting, um, as well as the students in the way that I kind of wanted to see that, but noodles model resonates a lot more with me. And so okay, two years. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into okay. that. So let's talk about that transition then. Yes. Um, so in thinking about the transition, that's a jump. You're right. And you've had so many different experiences at public, private institutions in higher ed, um, some for-profit models, and now corporate. And so, and what you said earlier just really resonated. Two things. One is culture and yeah. figuring out the cultural fit. So I'd love to know how you found that cultural fit. Fit. And then the other thing I want to know about is um, more or less like um, what were some things uh, as you machete your way through the jungle? I like that analogy of startup. Uh, what were some things that you were hoping to kind of do as you left that sole instructor experience? Because I think you're right. We don't talk about this, but faculty typically don't team teach as well as our K to 12 friends do team. We don't team develop. It's rare. It's not impossible, but it's not common to uh, have a shared kind of learning teaching experience when you're a faculty member, you're on your own doing a lot of individual stuff and you team at a committee meeting or something boring like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as finding a cultural fit for me, um, I really, I'm going to be honest, I think the number one thing for me was knowing someone that I trusted that felt good about it. Um, And that's partly because I'd never worked in the business world nor entertained the idea. So uh, that was a, a, a big thing for me. So I asked questions of my, my boss about supporting professional development Um, I sought to kind of make sure that some of my preconceived notions about the business world wouldn't apply here. Like, 
hey, uh, if a student really is not a good fit for the program, can you confirm that they're not forced to enroll or stay because I'm not a salesperson, you know? So I had to really think about those questions uh, and fears that I had um, and make sure that they were dispelled in in one way or another. But some of it were were the questions I was asked. Like I had an interview with the president, Carrie, who is a a really uh, smart, strong woman. And I was super intimidated by her, but she asked me questions about like the future of online education where I was like, that is a really good question. I'm going to need some time to think about that. But that was pretty cool because so many of the other interviews I had had were like, all right, I kind of know what you're looking for me to say here. So, um, you know, those were the things I sought to kind of unpack for culture. Um, I also, you know, I really wanted to make sure I was in a remote position. I don't know that we highlighted that at this time, but, you know, I, I didn't, I don't want to have to give up my identity as a mother in the way that I would prefer. And I know it's a privilege that I get to do this. Um, and they are fully, uh, most of, I think 30% are housed in New York and the rest are remote. Um, I didn't want to be at a company where I'm the only remote person either, though, because I have uh, colleagues who have have really had difficulty with that. So um, that was important. Also, like I I wanted um, a place where people did video conference. I know that seems like a given, but um, I needed to feel connected to people. And I was worried I would lose that if I wasn't on a college campus. And, uh, honestly, like when I see my colleagues, I, um, it's like they're my long lost friends because you see them online so much, um, on you, we use zoom. Um, so it's wonderful when you see them in person. Um, but a lot of companies, cause we partner with other providers, they'll, they'll still be kind of defaulting to phone calls and such, which I think is, is a really different dynamic. So those are some of the things I looked for in cultural fit. Um, any questions or any thoughts or questions about that? Did you want to? Yeah, no, I think you've said a couple things that are really important. So you've kind of identified um, like what you could see, how that culture worked by the questions they asked, it sounded like, and how they yeah. worked themselves. And so it is unique. And we aren't seeing, we are seeing more companies do this is have a blend of some people on site somewhere physically or having cohorts on site in different places. And I think that's great. It's, a, it's an interesting model. Like we do this for some of our PhD programs right now that we teach yeah. is having them in different areas so they have that connection or they make a point of um, how we virtually team is really important so um, are there other things that you you're you felt like oh we're we're in this together because we are all distributed but what are some other cultural things that the company that you think is really smart that they do to either make you feel like everyone's a team um, because we know that online life is IRL uh, so what do they do to make that yeah. Uh, in real experience for all of you that are digitally spread apart? Um, Well, we have a a company gathering a few times a year. When I first started, it was uh, every three months. And so that really makes a big difference. Uh, Now that our our company has grown, I think I was like the 17th employee and now we're like 150. And I was the only one in my area and now I oversee the area. And so now like like in a few weeks, I'll be having a student affairs team um, offsite is what they call it. I think in higher ed, we would have called them retreats. But um, 
there's there's value placed on that, which is a bit ironic in that we're we're helping universities build online programs, but even within those, we recommend immersions to have that synchronous connection. Um, so that's one. I mean, another one is just like the thoughtfulness that you would hope an organization does in articulating its values. When I was the you know seventeenth employee, we had an offsite where we all came together and did various activities to create company values, and so. One of them that I like the most is that we're, oh, and it makes the acronym noodlers. So the O um, is opinionated yet respectful. And I had our, I had often felt silenced in student affairs. Um, like you can have an opinion, but don't share it with faculty because they might see that as being, um, you know, you overstepping. Uh, I didn't feel that as a faculty member. It was a very weird dynamic how uh, the privilege shifted, but um, at Noodle, like we're you know, the goal is to do the best job that we can possibly do for our students. And so, if something doesn't make sense, we're asked to call it out, even if it's different than, let's say, what the president of the company said. Similarly, like if you're not getting, we're, we're a matrixed organization. Um, and so there's a different kind of uh, folks in later, lateral and vertical uh, reporting structures. And so if there's funkiness, we're expected to address it. And I don't, that's definitely not something I experienced in higher ed. There was a lot of like, well, that person's just that way. Um, and then it, you know, it kind of fostered this feeling a lot of times of mediocrity and you know, one of the things I didn't know to look for this, but one of the things I find cool working in a business is we're like much more goal driven than ever I was in higher ed. And I'm like an assessment minded person, but our, our universities expect us to say like, what are your goals? How are you measuring against them? And then we have to give regular reports. And um, at first I was like, okay, y'all, like this is a lot of hovering and why do I have to articulate like my true north and what's the number that I'm uh, seeking to achieve every day, which for me is now I can say is, you know, is our retention goal. But uh, I had a bit of a visceral reaction to it. But then I kind of realized like we should be doing this on college campuses too. You know, one of the KPIs we have for the success coaches I oversee is that they respond to students for urgent issues within 12 hours. And sometimes they feel like that's hovering a bit too, but like that really our, our students deserve that. And we all know, we, every, every person listen to this, if you know that there's someone, someone you know who's gone to college has had to wait like two weeks for some financial aid office to get back to them. And then they just drive to the office, you know? So I didn't, again, I didn't know to look for this, but in, in the business world, because we have these customers um, and hopefully just because people want to have, want to be goal driven too. But I like that, that, that we are really, held accountable to a higher degree because it means what we're producing for our campuses and our students is a better experience. So it's also say those metrics offer a level of fairness all around. So you have clear expectations, uh, your clients or customers or people you work with also know what to expect. There's definitions. um, There's not bias that can come in if we're just kind of like, Oh, we'll see how that goes. Or we think it feels this way, or let me give you an anecdote versus the data. So I think that's really good. Um, So Fast forward, you're in this um, role, which I want you to tell them what you do. And it's been two years now. And um, 
tell me what you do and what you found out that was kind of a really interesting thing that you didn't really expect to get from this role um, and this experience with this new company. So I, um, I oversee the student affairs unit of uh, the OPM and uh, it's ever growing because our campus partners are, are ever asking us to do more for them. But essentially, a campus, uh, usually we're called... Can you define uh, what the student affairs expectation is? So for folks that maybe are from other countries that listen, so what would that entail? Like advising or coaching? Or- yeah, so so basically when a, con- uh, a university contracts with us, um, our model is such that they could uh, choose any, it's like a buffet in some ways, although we recommend the full meal, um, they can choose just support for learning design, marketing, incru- recru- recruitment, etc. And so my workflow, um, while sometimes we think maybe we should call be called student success uh, on on U.S. campuses, we say student affairs. Um, and so right now that includes a few buckets of things. First of all, I spend a lot of time and my team spends a lot of time working with uh, campus leaders, helping them to think about how they can adjust what they're doing to support students um, who are online. So really kind of making an an ecosystem that's inclusive of online learners. Um, And that's the slowest going, if I'm being honest, because it requires a paradigm shift. Um, but we do that initially so that when it comes to launching our programs, they're prepared to support our students. Um, and along those lines, we create or co-create an orientation for the online students. Um, and then I, my unit, we oversee success coaching. So we hire a partner provider who uh, does the success coaching. And so we sort of oversee the quality of their efforts. Um, the success coaches uh, function in a kind of, um, sometimes the literature would call it intrusive advising um, or in, engaged, I would say. Um, it's a lot more hands-on than what we see on college campuses, but um, because of my previous experience, uh, I'm very much can commit that it's not too much. So it's like um, them checking in and doing like milestones for the students throughout the semester. Or the precisely. Yeah. There's like okay. regular check-ins okay. and the ratio of coach to student is relatively low. It's like one to 65 for a part-time coach and okay. 130 full-time, whereas we might normally see like three, 400 on ground. If yeah. Um, so that is a piece of what we do. I also work really closely with, um, our product manager for student success because we, um, have been using one product, um, for looking at, uh, analytics on student performance in their courses. So we can really like proactively reach out to them if they miss some of those benchmarks that we know are um, sort of triggers like missing classes, assignments, et cetera. Um, we're transitioning to another um, product, which has been an interesting experience. I didn't think I'd learn about, but like writing the specs for what you want on something is a whole new world. Um, kind of cool to learn that. Um, and also yeah, our campus partners have been um, inquiring about what we can do to support them with career and alumni services. So that's something coming up. But then, you know, the probably the coolest thing I think it is that we're doing other than really working with the, the campus 
campuses to think about uh, adjusting their kind of programs. Like one campus is working on like a virtual career fair, which I think is not only cool because it's inclusive of our students, but there's a lot of people who don't want to drive to campus to go to a career fair or can't, right? So I'm excited about what that does for students, but we're actually um, in the process of creating a social engagement platform that will sit on top of the LMS that um, we believe based on the uh, user research that we've done that uh, it will make it so students don't feel like they have to create a Slack separately. Um, and that it really kind of, we call it, the, we're, we're calling it a virtual student union and what we know, what we, we call that on college campuses is the living room of the campus where sort of all of the community members can come together and uh, talk about their shared interests, whether it be personal or academic. And that's what we're seeking to kind of uh, recreate. And uh, we're, we're, we define it as we want the, our students to be uh, fiercely social. <laughs> so um, I like that. No, I think it's good. I think cool. I think what you said is really important. So I think about my, actually my alma maters in Canada, we, they do like coffee chat mingles and that's to um, get alumni to network with one another or with current students based on common interests. And so uh, go for coffee, which some people can do in person if they live in the area, or you can meet like, uh, like we are on zoom and I think, um, or web conference or whatever. And so I think thinking about, how we offer services is critical because I always think it's an afterthought of mm-hmm. most programs um, or any sort of learning design when the digital comes in. They're like, oh, well, that's not needed or not everyone wants it, which not everyone will, but there are some learners that do and need that social yeah. and uh, other connection to things that gets their, not just their degree, because that's not going to matter anymore. <laughs> like it's going to be the degree plus what are their experiences are they walking away with after right. these courses? Agreed. So. Yeah. What did you do then to kind of like uh, bring down that learning curve going from um, a clinical faculty role to directing what student success looks like online for Noodle partners? Yeah. Was there anything that kind of helped you in the transition or that you've learned along the way in the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, I sort of, I tend to just fall back on the literature. I know that like makes me pretty dorky, but even when I was working at Cal State Channel Islands, I started there doing leadership programs and the VP was like, really need you to hop into orientation. And I was like, I'm not even the type of person that would have attended my orientation. Never mind, you know, run one. But then I like uh, every FYE journal, everything, new student journal, you know, I just tried to consume it all. Because I mean, anecdotally, intuitively, you can imagine what would be useful, but hey, a lot of other people have studied this, so let's look at that. So that was a big thing that I did. Um, I really dove into what was there, and there is a good amount there, as you well know, but what what is, I see a, a gap myself, is that most of the research that's been done has been done by faculty who teach online or directors of online programs, or um, what's the other avenue? I guess just sort of ed tech folks. But my point is it's not done by student affairs people. So if you read, like I had this one book I was reading about uh, how to create an effective online orientation. And it had a lot of the things you would think, like orienting students to technology, but it didn't have some of the things that in student affairs were trained to put in an orientation, like integrating students into the social aspects of the campus and making them feel uh, 
bonded to the sort of university and the traditions. And so I've been able to leverage my experience and blend the two, but I sure would love to see some more student affairs folks do research uh, in this area. Yeah, I've seen, so in looking at some of the literature and the advising, because um, that had been my background, there's some, but you're right, not enough. And as I think there's a bigger trend to look at flexible university or what university offerings look like, yeah. um, it's not just online. Like we use online, but that's kind of um, code also for um, hybrid blended, blended or, yeah. or just technology enhanced learning. So yeah. we aren't like thinking about all of those other factors. So I think it's good that um, we're identifying some gaps in literature. Sounds like some research project <laughs> down the road, uh, but you're also kind of saying, well, why is this? And um, there's, a pro- there's probably a couple of reasons there, but um, what could you be doing to like test and practice as well? Yeah. So I think that's really great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Like one of the things that I had felt concerned about was just how slow campuses are to be willing to think about how they'll support online students. Um, And I went to NASPA this year and it was the 100th, you know, anniversary. So there were a lot more sessions than normally. And there were 10 that had anything to do with online students out of like, I think, 500 and mine was one of them. So uh, actually, I had I spoke to the NASPA president about it, and uh, he recently emailed me and uh, actually invited me. There's like 10 to 15 folks who have expertise in this area that they're gathering in Chicago to talk about uh, kind of the, changing the narrative in the profession to make sure that we are including this 30% of learners who choose to participate in online education, whether it's taking one or more courses. And so that was a, I'm really excited about it, uh, A, to be part of it, but B, just to know that that conversation is happening. So, That's good. Um, NASPA, yeah. for those listening, is uh, based in, in the U.S. It's just one of two student affairs, college student personnel, higher ed, student educator um, associations that are kind of like yeah. the major associations. So we'll put a link to um, them and their work because, Jamie, you had been connected with them before. Um, ACPA is the other. So we'll put them in yeah. to offer yeah. both experiences. I would say Definitely. you're right. Like, And that's something I've talked about in those two students um, affairs associations in the U.S. and then one in Canada's caucus is uh, just thinking about distance delivered, whatever it is, whether mm-hmm. it's services, student success, support, because um, we know that some of our front doors aren't physical anymore. They're virtual. And people right. are looking for resources, advice, issues, um, any time of the day. Um, their access to information is there, but we're not providing different services. So it's good that I think that you are thinking about that. And your learners that will use it won't just be your online 30% right. fully online. There'll be a bunch of different learners that will take advantage of it. You'd be surprised uh, or not surprised that they'll want to reach out and connect to some sort of digital resource. Well, even so much as like, if you have to sign a a paper, right? Like whatever it is, FERPA release, let's say. Um, Who wants to drive all the way to campus to fill out a FERPA release? Like, hello, this is 2019. We should be able to do that virtually. Now, we're leading the conversation with, look, you have a learner in another state. You got to change this because they really, it literally makes it uh, exclusive as a barrier to them. But um but just for ease of, you know, I don't want to drive all the way over there. Can you just 
can I email it to you? So yeah. those are some of the basic conversations we have even, you know? Yeah. And so purpose for sign for privacy. And I would say um, you're right. Like I think signage to our simple business processes, we just haven't changed because this is how we've done things is the, what we hear. Right. So yeah. this is how we've always done things or we've yeah. tried that. It didn't work then. And well, guess what? Some of those um, opportunities to leverage the technology is different now. And there yeah. are, there's more access to things that we could, uh, customize and use. So I, I think it's growing as I've read a recent OPM report. So your online program management, um, there's a couple of you that are uh, thriving and I believe you're in one of them, but there's a bunch that are out there now. Like it's, yeah, there's like 40 or something. I saw this one article. I was like, who knew? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't like, this has been more in the last, like it's, but they've been around for a while, a few of them, but th- this is like, that's a lot, 40, seriously. Yeah, there's an article I saw on Inside Higher Ed. I mean, I think uh, To You was the first one that was mm-hmm. a little over 10 years ago. But yeah, there's there's something like 40 of them now. But um, I will say, you know, because focusing on sort of like career switches and what, what's mm-hmm. different than what you expected. So one thing to, to the change part that you mentioned, something I love about not being on a campus position is that we can change quickly. Um, now it's not like we're like do one thing tomorrow and then change it the next day. I mean, we're, we're making to the best of our ability evidence-based decisions, but, uh, change on a college campus is like as slow as a barge turning in the ocean, right? It's like super slow, but, um, in the, the business world, at least from what I've experienced, it's much more like a sailboat um, that we can pivot as we learn new things. And what I like about that is that we can pivot when we want to innovate. And um, that takes forever on college campuses. The other the other thing, you know, because I, I think a lot of folks, especially talking to my student affairs uh, colleagues, I mean, there's a lot of folks leaving the profession and or feeling... Um, dismayed with the profession for a variety of reasons. And I think it's it's important to know that there are a lot of opportunities adjacent to universities that are great. And certainly, like, I'm not going to lie, there's nothing that replaces for me the synergy and the warmth I got from, like, having student assistants in my office and getting to mentor them and get to know them. Like, that was amazing. Um, but there's a lot of things I don't deal with now that uh, I would take home with me at night, like the politics uh, that would go on on college campuses or the fact that it was, you know, you could see a problem so crystal clear, uh, clearly, and you needed to have about, you know, 80 committee meetings (laughs) until the problem could really be addressed. Meanwhile, students are not really getting the ideal experience along the way. So, uh, it's great to be able to be innovative um, and to to just really feel like you can contribute uh, and, and leverage your skills, but just in a different environment. I will say that folks should think about um, changing what you anchor your identity toward. Like I was, I was going to be a music educator. I was a student affairs person I want to be a VPSA probably one day was like my goal on a college campus and I like in retrospect I wish I would have anchored my identity more to what brings me joy as far as throughout the day uh, how I want to spend my days what are my values which the value part like making an impact on students is woven through but um, the reason I say that is because 
I had opportunities literally staring me in the face. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Should I do that? And it, it was obviously a door that I should walk through. Like the door was wide open, Jamie, but I pondered it and I stressed. And it was because I had defined myself as a campus-based student affairs professional or a campus-based faculty member. And what did that mean if that was going to change? And so, you know, you have to be willing to sort of rethink about how you define yourself. Um, That was a pretty important lesson I learned. I think that's a great point. I like that you said you have the opportunity to be nimble. I would also point out that your experience online, sorry, on campus first and then going to remote and working corporate does inform each other. So it's kind of like what I talk about. You and I have lived yeah. in analog worlds before there was digital and online. So having a value, having some experience in both is worth it. So I always say get some... Yeah. And having a different experiences on different campuses, not just the one you studied at or went to as an undergrad, is really important. Um, the other one that you mentioned, I would agree. I actually just heard a really good podcast episode. I'll put it in the notes, but it's with Debbie Millman, who's been podcasting for like 15 years. She's in design, accidentally fell into design. And she interviewed Austin Cleon. He wrote the Steal Like an Artist book, which was ironically Debbie's quote. And so she interviewed him. And he said, um, the thing I like that you brought up is think about the verbs the things you want to be doing, the verbs, mm-hmm. the practices, the work, the things that you really get to going, and then not the nouns, the titles, yeah. the role, the yep. things like that. So I, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, and you re- you reiterated that really well uh, with your own experience. Um, I, I want to top it off with like, yeah. to say that um, even once I was at Noodle and had this job, I was pretty concerned about what that would mean for my future like, what do I do after this? And I met with Michael Berman and... Uh, a hashtag weird CIO. We'll put a shout out to him. He's a uh, chief innovation officer, I think, for the California State University System. Um, I the think I part is uh, his title. But um, <laughs> he said to me, Jamie, there's a very good likelihood that the job of which you will be doing next has not yet been created. So to your point, Think of the verbs and don't get tied up with the nouns because you might be able to actually create your own job, which is pretty much what I ended up doing at Noodle, um, or the job that you're looking for may not be yet created. And I'm I'm pretty confident to say that that's the case for me. Uh, and I'm not I'm not really necessarily looking for another position, but uh, it's hard not to think of the future. But I I'm not stressed out about it because I do just think uh, there's going to be something just totally unique that will be kind of like, oh yeah, here's a door. Walk through it, Jamie. And I'm going to be smarter uh, whenever that time comes. And I mean, maybe it won't come. Maybe I'll just be a noodler for life and have uh, endless amounts of pasta. I don't know. We'll see. I hope that you do <laughs> pasta gatherings when you get together. Um, no, I will say <laughs> openness, is about to. openness is really important. So you don't know what's going to come your way in yeah. life. Um, so I think that's a really great strategy. Um, all right, let's get to the meat and potatoes of our typical podcast. We like to talk about a few things since we say we're about storytelling and wine. Um, what's uh, wetting your palate these days for drink? Is there a wine? Is there a beverage of choice that you go to when you gather with your noodlers or friends and family? Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, first of all, you should know that I break a, a wine rule. Okay. And that is that I like ice in my red wine. So uh, people might hate me for that. Some people do at bars, but the wine I like, cause I, and I'm in Southern California, so I know I get a lot of it, but my friend introduced me to a wine called Ron Bauer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I really like that. Um, I'm not a super wine enthusiast. So if you ask me follow-up questions, I'll just be like, it tastes good. It's kind of jammy. Is it from Southern California? Is that where it's from? I think so. Okay. I'll I'll put in the notes. I'll look it up. Don't worry. It's my homework. Um, Do you know why you like uh, uh, ice in your wine? I think because the taste of wine is a little like too strong for me, unless it's cold. Like it's because a little, it's supposed it could be. be the kind of wine, to be honest. No, it's supposed to be cool. This is red wine you're speaking of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So I will say uh, we had an episode, I'll put a link into it. Uh, we talked about temperature of wine. And so they, when they say room temperature, they mean castle room temperature. So none of us live in a castle. Well, not in North America. There's no real castles in North America. Um, so <laughs> Biltmore does not count either. Um, no. So I will say we don't have that cold temperature that you would in most places. Even if you're in an air-conditioned house, uh, your your wine should be chilled. Any and all, red included, we put ours in the fridge too. So good for you. On oh, right. yay. Yes. It's not just me that's a weirdo. No, no. It's a true fact. We, it's in the wine Bible. We read it. I'll put it in the, our mini episode to prove it to folks. All right, cool. Um, do you have a story that's kind of, that you've been enjoying of something you read, watched, listened to? Um, I'm making my way through Dare to Lead uh, by Brene Brown. And, and I say making my way because I'm slow. I didn't mention this, but I, I have a three and a six-year-old, so they require a lot of my time. <laughs> and then um, with podcasts, uh, this is probably indicative of some of my career shifting, but I've lately really been enjoying Harvard Business Reviews uh, podcasts. And I, I think a lesson I've learned is like, you forget that uh, leveraging lessons from other contexts could be super useful. I mean, in this instance, I'm at a business, so it's directly useful, but totally wish as a student affairs person that I'd have been listening to some of that stuff because there's great information there. So those are the, the main things. Uh, is the Harvard Business Review, is, not, is that the Women at Work one or is there another There's one? a few and all of them are great. There's yeah. Women at Work. There's one about, that's one... Um, where you call in uh, or where they, they read and review different like listener scenarios, um, which kind of ends up being like, you could kind of see yourself in those scenarios um, yourself. There's it's HBR idea cast is one. Um, Dear HBR is one, as you mentioned, women at work is one. Um, Those ones I, I tend to gravitate toward when I'm driving. I like podcasts that have like a super practical application for me. I can go back to work and be like, I just was thinking about this in the podcast. Well, good thing you're in a learning industry uh, as a corporate industry because yes. <laughs> uh, you all have learning. <laughs> exactly. That is one of our values as well. I like that. Um, so before we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to share that's bringing you joy right now or making you smile these days? Well... Um, we just moved house. So it brings me joy that we're actually in said new house. Um, I like to do CrossFit, uh, on the regular, although I haven't really been wanting to get up at five twenty in the morning this last couple of weeks while moving, but, um, that's been a unique thing that I've, uh, I always thought was kind of cultish, but now like I'm in the cult and I'm like fully bought in. It's a great community. Um, so I, that brings me a lot of joy. It's sort of the one hour a day that just everybody just goes there and, and brings their best and has a laugh and it's a good start to the day. Um, so that's really uh, a fun thing. And then also I'm like, I like to do um, crafting in that I have a little machine that I can print out personalized uh, items, vinyl, um, notably I do etching as well. So I, I like doing those things in my free time. 
I like that. Uh, no, I think it's important that you said two things, do something off screen and especially because yeah. you work online and find a community that's local. Cause yeah, that's important too. Yeah. I heard a, th- a thread of community in um, some of your other podcasts and it actually made me reflect on, on that, you know, and do I feel community at, at work, uh, which I do, but I also fill that in with the, uh, what I don't f- feel from work. I fill it in from my little, uh, my little CrossFit community. That's awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing, uh, your career change and pivot. Uh, Jamie, it's yeah. been great to hear your story and I hope that our listeners, uh, will take some ideas from you and we'll share some of the notes that uh, you'll pass on and, uh, welcome back anytime. So if you have a new idea you want to talk about, come on by. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to hashtag InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers.